over everything. The Father has given you this authority. And we praise you, Lord God, and pray for help to trust you. Um, trust your authority and trust your goodness and your compassion and your gentleness and your kindness. Lord, there are many things we face in life that it is easy to rely upon ourselves or to rely upon others, but Lord, help us to increase in faith in you. Grow us, oh Lord God, we need it. We ask for this morning, we ask that you, Spirit, would give us ears to hear Give me strength to be clear. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be magnified. Thank you for this time together in your name. Amen. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> we continue on in our trek through Matthew, and we will read Matthew 8, 1 through 17. Matthew 8, 1 through 17. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, we spent uh, the last several weeks, probably the last couple months, really, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And what's interesting when you go into a big teaching section, and there's five major teaching sections in the book of Matthew, uh, the five discourses of Jesus, where he's giving instruction on discipleship of a variety of sorts, and Matthew 5 through 7 is a foundational core to that. But when you do that, you essentially freeze time, right? If, if you think about the story and what's unfolding in Matthew, you essentially hit pause in Matthew 4, 
uh, and the action stopped in a sense, right? Jesus is teaching, and now you pick back up on the action in Matthew 8. And what you have to realize is actually Matthew, uh, let's, say, uh, let's say chapter 5, uh, the end of chapter 4 through chapter 9 is kind of one big unit. Matthew gives us a couple bookends uh, of what's going on. You remember at the end of Matthew chapter 4, uh, Jesus had begun his uh, ministry in Galilee. And that ministry was summarized in a couple different ways. In Matthew 4.17, uh, it was summarized this way. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember that, that overarching concept of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that God has planned from, uh, from Genesis to Revelation uh, for his delegated king, his chosen king, to reign over all of creation, starting with Adam and then ultimately fulfilled through the son of David, Jesus. And uh, what do you do in response to the coming of the kingdom? You ought to repent, to turn your allegiance from sin and self and entrust yourself to Jesus as king and to follow him. And so Jesus gathers some followers at the end of chapter 4, and then it talks about him going out and doing this ministry. Verse 23 in chapter 4 says this, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea from beyond the Jordan. So all the different areas of Israel, they're flocking to Jesus as he's healing. What was interesting, if you turn over to chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 35, you see a bookend statement, almost an identical statement that kind of uh, forms a bookend from chapter 4 to chapter 9 of what Jesus is doing. So chapter 9, verse uh, 35, and listen to this. It'll sound familiar. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And so what's going on and from chapter 4 to chapter 9 is this segment where uh, Matthew is still presenting Jesus as king, uh, and he's demonstrating Jesus' authority as king. And he's demonstrated his authority in a couple ways. Remember how the Sermon on the Mount ended last week? The crowds, after hearing his teaching, were amazed at his authority. He's teaching with authority, not as their scribes, not as a commentator, but as a lawgiver, as God himself incarnate. But now what we see, and it, it, there was already kind of a general uh, description of Jesus' ministry of healing, but now what we start to see in chapter 8, we resume the action and we see Jesus demonstrating his authority over sickness and disease and nature. In a variety of different ways, what we're going to see from chapter 8 through chapter 9 is Jesus demonstrating his authority in these tangible ways. And you remember, uh, when we think about Jesus' miracles and Jesus' healings, uh, that's related to the kingdom. We said before that that's the idea of him giving foretaste, uh, trailers, uh, tastes, of what the kingdom is going to be like. You see, the restoration, of, if you think back in Genesis, right, the, the plan for the kingdom under Adam was a, 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 a blissful state of enjoying God's life-giving presence with no disease, no sickness, no pain. And the future fulfillment of that kingdom in Jesus will be the very same thing. Perfect righteousness, no diseases, 
no pain, no suffering. So Jesus is giving these foretastes of the kingdom, but coupled with this message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's drawn near in the person of the king. He's giving samples of the kingdom. And if it's that good, you need to repent because God's judgment is coming and only those who entrust themselves to Jesus will escape it. And so that's what we're going to see. Even as we walk through chapter 8 and chapter 9, there's going to be, a, 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 let's say, a, a section of a few miracles, but then Jesus is going to pause and talk a little bit more about discipleship. Then he's going to do some more miracles. Then he's going to talk a little bit more about discipleship. So it's not just he's healing in and of itself. He's doing so to call people to himself, to discipleship. And you're going to see that as we walk through these chapters. And so the big idea for today, as we walk through 8, 1 through 17, is this. Entrust yourself completely to Jesus as the compassionate, serving, and healing king. Entrust yourself completely to Jesus as the compassionate, serving, and healing king. And so what we're going to do as we walk through this is, uh, really, each of these sections, each of these episodes, is designed to show you some of the character quality of Jesus, right? Uh, Matthew's trying to present in each of these episodes a little bit more about who Jesus is, because that's the one to whom you're to entrust yourself to. And so first, what we're going to see in verses 1 through 4 is this, the Lord is willing to cleanse for restoration. The Lord is willing to cleanse for restoration. Let's look at the text. Chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, so you remember he went up the mountain in chapter 5, uh, like Moses, but also he sat down as the lawgiver, as God himself, to give his law from the mountain. Now he's coming down. Great crowds uh, followed him. And we talked about in chapter 4, these great crowds, they kind of come for the healing. Uh, not all of them have committed to Jesus that are actually following him as disciples. They're kind of, we're not sure where their allegiances lie. They're they're, are they there for the miracles? Are they there for Jesus? We're not sure. But they're following him. And then we see this complicating moment here, verse 2. And behold, drawing our attention, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And we have to pause and think a little bit about what leprosy is, and especially what uh, its relationship was to different activities in Israel. You see, the, the biblical term for leprosy, it's the same in uh, um, the, there's a, it's pretty universal from Old Testament to New Testament. It doesn't refer to what we would today would call modern leprosy. Modern leprosy is what's known as Hansen's disease, and it deforms your your joints and your, your muscles, you, you lose feeling in your skin. But biblically, if you look back at Leviticus 13 and 14, where it talks about leprosy, it's talking about skin diseases and rashes and of a variety of sorts. Actually, it talks about leprosy in a house or in a, um, uh, in a garment. And, and so it's, it's, it's not the, medical, the modern medical designation that we would say is leprosy. It's more these kind of skin diseases. They, by Jesus' time, it could possibly have included uh, Hansen's disease, but uh, not in general. So, in general, that's the medical kind of side of, of leprosy. But here's what's more important for understanding uh, as we come to what Jesus is about to do in the text. 
You see, if you were to go back to Leviticus, there's all these uh, laws about leprosy and other things talking about whether you're clean or whether you're unclean. And we see the leper here use that language. If you're willing, you can make me clean. What's he talking about? We need to understand this because this is an Old Testament concept. See, in the Old Testament, uh, really, you can see this across the scriptures, uh, what God did, he, he had the, the tabernacle, uh, the, the, te- the temple later, in the middle of Israel. And what you have to understand about that, there's always been a temple, there's always been this uh, manifestation, this concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth, but that was special for Israel. Israel was a priestly people because they had a man, a con- the concentrated manifestation of God's presence dwelling on earth in the tabernacle. And what you had to understand is that was sort of the fountain of life, so to speak, of Israel, right? Uh, in the center, you have the holy place, the place that's devoted to God, the place that uh, not people and objects and all of the symbolism and everything, it's devoted to God. It was holy. And that created a, 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 a two categories in Israel. You had the holy connected with the temple, that which is devoted to God, and then you had the common. You had the holy, and then you had the common. So you have the, uh, the priests, you have the offerings, you have the, t- the tabernacle or the temple. That's holy. It's devoted to God. It's devoted to God's worship. But then the common, it was just kind of neutral, right? Um, in general, I mean, you're doing life, yeah, but, but if you wanted to draw near to uh, God's presence, you would go to the temple or you would go to the tabernacle. Now, within the common uh, designation, you had the clean and the unclean. You had the clean and the unclean. So if you were clean, you could approach the tabernacle or the temple. You could draw near to God's life-giving presence. But if you were designated unclean, you could not. You could not. And the idea is if you're unclean, you have to stay farther away. Uh, Because if the unclean comes in contact with the holy, it's... uh, death happens, right? The, the life of God overwhelms the uncleanness of the person and destroys it, consumes it. And what you also have to understand is this idea of unclean, uh, it, it was associated with death. If you look at all, there's a debate about this, but if you go back to Leviticus and you look at all the things that are called unclean, at one level or another, they're associated with death or decay. So like leprosy, you've got flaking skin, you've got this and you've got maybe oozing uh, boils or things like this, and you're, there's a loss of life fluid. There's, it's associated with death, and death can't draw near. Death is the most unclean state uh, separated from God, God's life-giving presence. It's like the holy place is the fountain, right, but of life, but if you're in, uh, more in the death category, you're in the unclean category, you have to draw away. And so a leper would have to live on his own outside the camp of Israel. Remember, the camp of Israel, it's centered. It's literally centered around the tabernacle. And later, uh, in the temple, uh, the center of um, Israel's life was in the temple. And so the idea is the leper, as one who's unclean, can't come in contact with the holy, can't draw near to God's presence, has to draw away. And it's not so much that he has to draw away from his fellow Israelites, although that's true to an extent, What's significant is he has to draw away from God's life-giving presence. That's the significance of leprosy. Now, something that was unclean could be cleansed and become clean, 
Or if you're clean, you could become polluted and become unclean. And if you touched a leper, uh, you would become unclean. So we kind of see how this works. But that's what you got to keep in mind is that that tabernacle temple imagery and its significance for leprosy. The big downside, if you want to put it that way, uh, of leprosy is that you can't draw near to God's life-giving presence. You can't worship God in the temple. Because if you do, you've got contact between the holy and the unclean, and it, that could kill you. So we come back to what, Je- with that background, we come back to what Jesus is doing here. Now, the leper addresses him as Lord. Now, uh, I don't think that the leper necessarily understands that Jesus is God. Uh, there's still, uh, people are still coming. That's, that takes a while for people to understand that. But at the very least, uh, it's not just a polite term. Uh, sometimes you could use that term Lord in a polite way, like Mr. or something like that. I think it's beyond that. What he has seen from Jesus, he knows that Jesus is an authoritative agent from God that can heal, that speaks for God. So it's more than politeness, uh, it's less than an ascription to deity in this case, probably. But he comes to him and he says, Lord, if you will, if you would just, uh, I know that you could heal me if you just do it. If you will it to happen, you could do it. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He's not just asking for cleansing in the sense of get rid of the rash or the whatever form of leprosy he had. He's asking I want to be near God's presence again. I want to draw near in worship. And we see this, and Jesus, and the text kind of slows it down a little bit. Um, it's kind of like the dramatic uh, in a movie, right? It's like the, the frame rate slows down. You're watching this happen, right? Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, which would normally make Jesus unclean. But we see what happens, saying, I will, I'm willing to do this, I want to do this, I'm go- I am doing this, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Cleansed. And Jesus says to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, probably uh, to not attract crowds for the wrong reason, but go, show yourself to the priest." And after the gift that Moses commanded, which is described in Leviticus 14, you can look that up later if you want, for a proof to them. For a proof to whom? Well, I think he's talking about the, the priest generally. It's not that he's just showing himself to one priest. He's showing himself to the priestly system. If you're going to draw near to God and to God's life-giving presence, you need, the priests need to know, hey, that guy was a leper, but now he's clean, and he's gone through the appropriate rites to be able to draw near to God. Again, that's what Jesus is talking about. Then, the, the priests need a testimony of, oh yeah, this guy has been cleansed, we can see he's clean, he can draw near. But what you need to see in this, like we said, what Matthew is painting for us is some of the character of Jesus. Right? We see Jesus' compassion, right? even in touching a leper in this sort of way. Uh, now you say, well, wait a minute, doesn't Jesus become unclean? Well, think about what happened in Matthew Chapter 3, Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came and resided on him to empower his whole ministry. Now, normally, if you have like uh, Joe, Joe Israelite come up and touch a leper, right, the flow is from uncleanness to kind of neutrality, right? 
the flow is from, okay, you're unclean. The uncleanness flows to the, the neutral person. But here, what's going on, a unique case, right? Here you have one who is clothed with the Holy Spirit, and the flow is from holiness to cleansing. The flow is towards the leper. Jesus doesn't become unclean. He cleanses. Jesus doesn't become unclean. He cleanses. And again, it's an act of compassion. Jesus is willing to do this. And the compassion is, you know, we often think, maybe you've heard this, people talk about this before, that, oh yeah, it's compassionate because now the leper would be able to rejoin society, and that's good. There's some of that, but more importantly, this leper can now draw near to the beating heart of Israel's worship to God's life-giving presence in the temple. Jesus is giving him the best gift he could have, in a sense, that the, 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 where life in its fullness truly resides is with God and near his presence. And so for him to touch and cleanse this leper so that he can draw near is the most compassionate thing that Jesus could do. You know, like we said, uncleanness was, was connected with death. Uh, and that uncleanness could be things, ritual, like, a, like a leprosy or an unclean animal or whatever, or a dead corpse. But really, a lot of that was just to symbolize the uncleanness of sin, right? The only reason things like leprosy are in the world is because of sin, because of the fall. And the bigger reality is, for the one who's in sin, uh, and this is part of the, what Leviticus talks about as well, right? For the one who's in sin, that also is uncleanness. But with the picture we have of Jesus here is the one who's compassionate, who's willing to cleanse so that one can draw near to God. You see, in sin, we cannot draw near to God. It's a contact between the unclean and the holy, and the unclean one will be destroyed, annihilated. But... But what we see in Jesus is the compassion to cleanse so that we can draw near to God's presence. And you may think, maybe you're here this morning, maybe you don't know Jesus, uh, but you do realize your sinfulness. You've sinned against a holy God and you deserve his wrath and judgment because you have offended a holy God. But you're very aware of your uncleanness, your sinfulness, but that doesn't push you to Jesus, and that's not good, <laughs> right? You're, 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 you're aware of your sinfulness, but that keeps you away. But what Jesus is doing here, he is the one who is compassionate and tender and kind and wants you to draw near to God's presence and wants to cleanse you so that you can enjoy God's life-giving presence. And even as a disciple, right, uh, we've talked about how disciples, those who are following Jesus, right, they're going to fall short. The Sermon on the Mount talked about that. You're going to fall short, uh, and so you need to ask God for forgiveness for sin and draw near to him again. But sometimes as, as Christians, we, we are very aware of our guilt. We are very aware of our sinfulness, and we stay away. It's like, i got to clean myself up. i got to clean myself up before I come and draw near to God. And that's not at all how we approach God. We approach God through Jesus in an initial and an ongoing way as a disciple. We trust the one who is, has the power to cleanse us, not only of physical ailments, but of our deepest need and spirit, uh, in sin. He has the power to cleanse us from sin. What he did on the cross in his death and resurrection has the power to cleanse us from our sin so that we can enjoy 
God's life-giving presence, both now in measure and in fullness in the kingdom. You need to see your life as needing cleansing to approach God's presence, and you need to approach Jesus in faith, in an initial and an ongoing way, that he is willing to cleanse you. He is compassionate and desirous to cleanse you to be able to approach God's life-giving presence, and that is good news. So that's the first thing we see in this section. The Lord is willing to cleanse for restoration. The Lord is willing to cleanse for restoration. Second, what we see in verses 5 through 13 is this. The Lord has trustworthy healing authority. The Lord has trustworthy healing authority. Look at verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, so each one of these episodes, it starts with a movement. Jesus moves, or something moves, and the scene changes, right? It's a, it's a cut scene. Um, so we get uh, verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, now Capernaum's uh, Jesus' adopted home. It's right there on the, the, the Sea of the Galilee. We've seen him there before. A centurion came, uh, came forward to him, appealing to him. Now, a centurion, this is, this is a Gentile, um, it seems like uh, there's probably it's not Roman necessarily. Uh, Rome had auxiliary troops uh, in the area, so these folks weren't. Necess- this wasn't necessarily a guy from an army from Rome directly, but they would. Uh, Rome would take auxiliary troops from areas around Israel and form kind of uh, auxiliary troops, still organized and headed under Rome. But that's probably who this centurion is. A centurion is a commander of a hundred troops. So this is a Gentile for sure. And what's interesting about a Gentile approaching to him, it's like the leper approaching him. Because in Israel's mindset, if you've got Israel is the holy priestly people, and within that holy priestly people, yeah, you have lepers, they're unclean, but they can be cleansed and brought back. But outside the holy priestly people of Israel is Gentiles, the nations. And you, you're unclean because you're not even in the priestly people. You can't even draw near to God's presence like uh, a male Jew could. And so it's a similar sort of case in a way. Uh, Usually you can see this actually in Acts, in Acts 10, when uh, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, it's a big deal because Jews are like, "Eh, don't eat with Gentiles, they're unclean. Don't spend time with them, don't go under their roof. But here we have a Gentile approaching Jesus, and he's appealing to them. Verse 6, Lord, probably the same sort of uh, way that uh, the leper spoke of Jesus as Lord is the, the same way the centurion is. He knows that he's an authorized representative for God. He's, he's speaking for God. He's, he's an agent of God. It's more than politeness, but less than an ascription to deity, at least in the centurion's mind. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And now notice the centurion doesn't ask for anything, does he? Not, not directly, anyway. He doesn't directly ask anything, and yet we see this in verse 7. And he, Jesus, said to him, the centurion, I will come and heal him. Just like that. Just like that. Jesus is willing to come under the roof of a Gentile and to heal his servant. But here we get a contrast with the last episode, verse 8, but the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. See, he understands the 
he understands that Jesus is worthy. He understands the sensitivity between Jews and Gentiles. But only say the word, literally speak with a word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority. See, he recognizes I'm under authority of someone else, and Jesus is like that. He's under the authority of God. He's an agent of God. With soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, the centurion gets to speak with a word to his underlings, and they carry it out instantly. And what he is saying and arguing to Jesus is, I get it, you're under God as an agent, but you have an authority given to you by God such that you can speak to diseases, and they do exactly what you want, what, um, you want them to do. You don't even need to be there. Every healing we've seen so far, Jesus is there, and he literally, like the leper, touches the person. But here the centurion's like, you have such authority that you just need to speak the word, just like I speak my word to my underlings, and it's done. That's the level of authority that you have, Jesus. So I'm not worthy to have you under my roof, but would you please still show compassion and just speak the word? And I don't know if you notice, but this episode in the section we're looking at, it's the longest, so we, it has the most to teach us in a lot of ways. Uh, we see kind of the core of what Jesus' healings are getting at. And notice what Jesus does, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He's, he's astounded. Jesus is astounded. Think of that, right? The Son of God incarnate, astounded. Why, what is he astounded at? And said to those who follow him. So it's kind of like Jesus is facing the centurion, right? They're talking face to face. But he's, Jesus got all these big crowds right behind him. So it's kind of what happens is Jesus does this. He turns it about face, and he's addressing these people following him. Now, again, the crowds following him, some of them are the disciples, committed disciples, those who have repented. Some are kind of looky-loos, right? They're, um, hey, what's going on here? Who's this guy? Maybe we, you know... Um, so there's a lot in this crowd that haven't committed to following Jesus yet. But what he's doing, he's taking it aside from the centurion, and he's turning to those behind him, and he's teaching. He's teaching. He says this, truly I tell you, which means I'm going to highlight the statement I'm about to tell you. Uh, what I'm about to tell you is I'm emphasizing. With no one in Israel have I found such faith. And that little word such is actually fairly important. The idea uh, of this word such um, in the original is the idea of quality. It's the idea of, I have not found such a quality faith with no one in Israel. Now we're talking about faith. We need to, this is really important. What kind of faith did the centurion have? Well, it's a faith whose object is Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus in all of his authority, right? So the, notice what the centurion said. He noticed Jesus was worthy, right? He is worthy in and of himself. Uh, he has authority over these sicknesses. So Jesus has this authority and this power. And in a sense, the centurion is also banking on his compassion, right? But it's, it's who Jesus is 
that is this kind of faith. And notice Jesus is saying, hey, I was, I've been looking, in a sense, he's kind of saying this, I've been looking for this kind of faith in Israel. All that we've seen in Matthew, the early chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, has been pushing towards this is the king, this is the Messiah, this is the one you need to have trust in. And he's looking for faith, and he hasn't found the kind of faith that the centurion has. Here's a guy, uh, a Gentile, who may or may not have access to the Old Testament scriptures, certainly has disadvantage in the sense that he doesn't have all the, 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 the privileges that the Jews have as far as access to the scriptures, teaching, being part of God's chosen people, but yet he has a more quality faith than any that Jesus has found in Israel. He's, so Jesus is setting up this contrast between the Israel and the Gentiles. And this is important to note. Sometimes, when we think about the nature of faith, right? We talk about, as Christians, we know that salvation is by faith alone through Jesus. We know that. But sometimes what we think of faith is, we think of faith as belief. When you just hear the word belief, it's like, well, I believe this fact, this fact, this fact, this fact, therefore I'm good. That's not how Scripture talks about faith. Or sometimes even as Christians, we think about faith like, uh, this is great, this time of year, I don't know if you go into department stores like Macy's. I was in Macy's uh, when we went to Spokane a couple weeks ago. And they got this big dial. And it says believe on it, right? And you, it's like the believometer, right? Like if you have more Christmas spirit, you're, the, the, the needle's going to increase, right? That's not biblical faith, right? Because in that case, if you just have enough Christmas spirit, if you just believe enough, what are you looking towards? You're looking towards yourself. You're looking towards yourself and having enough um, gumption, enough uh, con you're really putting, it, faith becomes a work in that sense. You're trying to muscle it up. You're trying to work it up from the inside. Oh, I have enough faith. You know, Santa's going to come or whatever. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith, the object of biblical faith is a person. Always a person. That's why I like to use the language entrust yourself to Jesus. Because you're not entrusting, you're not just believing a set of facts about a historical figure all, as much as that's necessary, but you are having dealings with a living person. Jesus, this is why the resurrection is so crucial. Jesus not only died, he rose again. And not only did he rose again, he ascended and not only did he ascend, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is the one mediator between God and man. And he's looking, if I may use that way, he's looking for the kind of faith that the centurion has. To trust Jesus in all of who he is, his ability, his compassion, his authority, to heal. Not merely from... Um, physical ailment, and we'll talk more about this later, but, but to deal with the greatest problem, sin, right? Matthew one twenty one, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for in himself. If you don't know Jesus, what does faith look like? Faith means I'm renouncing every... Uh, confidence in myself, my works, anything, and I am betting everything. I am looking to Jesus and all his saving, a power and authority and compassion to rescue me. 
to rescue me from God's wrath, and not merely just to rescue me from God's wrath, but to bring me into the fullness of life of enjoying God in his presence forever. Which is where Jesus goes next, actually. Verse 11, he continues, and he says, I tell you, remember he set up this contrast between Jews and Gentiles and the the faith that he's seeing. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing and teeth. This imagery would have been familiar to the Jews. Um, it really, it's kind of rooted in Isaiah 25. If you were to go back to Isaiah 25, we won't go there today, but you can go there later on your own time. But there's this picture of God giving a feast at the end of time. God giving a feast not merely for Jews, but also for Gentiles. And the idea is, uh, why does he mention Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, those are the, the, the three patriarchs that we see in Genesis. And what's connected with those three guys is the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. And if you're not familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and that gives you a brief summary. Basically, God's going to bless not only the Jewish people, but through the Jewish people, all the families of the ground. All the families of the ground. But in the, what happened to that kind of picture, and the picture is you're reclining at a feast uh, that God's going to make in the end, in the kingdom, to, use the, to draw a connection with the kingdom that we've been talking about, called the Messianic Feast, the, the, the feast that Jesus and God will preside over, the imagery got twisted in between the Old Testament and the New Testament to where the Jews thought, yeah, we're going we're gonna to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, our forefathers, and we got blessings from them. And, you know, but in their vision, the outer darkness, the, the, this idea of the outer darkness, is this darkness far away from the table, as far out as you could go. Uh, it's a picture of God's judgment. The Gentiles are going to be out there. And you see what Jesus is doing? He's flipping that around and saying, the people from east and west, the people that have the kind of faith that the centurion does in me, they're the ones going to be, by and large, reclining at the table. He's not excluding Jews, right? Because that language of east and west, and even you can see it in Isaiah and the, in general, there's a promise that God is going to gather Jews at the end of time. They're going to entrust themselves to the Messiah, and they're going to be a participant in this feast. But he's saying that there's they're going to be characterized by the faith of the centurion. There's going to be all peoples coming, but the sons of the kingdom. What does he mean by that? The people who by rights, by privilege, should be the ones inheriting the kingdom. The guys that have the knowledge the, 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 that you have all the advantages. You have all the advantages. You have the scriptures. You have the knowledge, and yet you don't have the faith. They're the ones that are going to endure God's judgment. Outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why weeping and gnashing of teeth? I I think it's a mixture of grief, pain, and anger, right? That God's judgment is not just experienced in an instant and then it's done. It is an ongoing torment because you have offended an infinitely holy God which deserves an infinite punishment which will result in grief and pain, and anger, and darkness for eternity. Unless you entrust yourself to Jesus, right? There's the hope that's held out in here, that that what is, how do you get into the kingdom? 
How do you get into the kingdom? You get into the kingdom through entrusting yourself to Jesus as the compassionate, authoritative Savior. And we see the conclusion of what happened. So he just was teaching the crowd, Jesus was just teaching the crowd behind him. And then he turns back to the centurion in verse 13. He says this, And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. Now again, sometimes we read that statement and we think, oh, it's kind of the, you know, proportional to the centurion's faith uh, is the disease. There's some iffiness here, right? So Jesus is saying, well, if you have enough faith, he's going to be healed. That's not actually what this is saying. In the original, it's really, really clear. Jesus in the original says, as you believed, it already happened. You've already demonstrated the faith. And then him saying, let it be done for you, it's actually an imperative, meaning it's going to happen. You already believed, you entrusted yourself to me, therefore this is going to happen. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. And the servant was healed at that very moment, instantly, with a word, just like the centurion entrusted himself to Jesus for. Here's the main, uh, really this section, Matthew spends so much time here because it's a great illustration of what biblical faith is. Never assume just because you know a lot of Christian things and participate in Christian activities that you are a Christian and will enter God's kingdom. That's like the sons of, that's like the Jews, right? They had all the advantages. They knew the stuff, but they didn't have faith. They didn't entrust themselves to Jesus. Entrusting yourself to Jesus with all his worthiness his authority and power alone is the basis for sitting at the messianic banquet in the kingdom. You think today's potluck's going to be good? No. No, it's the fellowship, the joy, the feasting, enjoying God's life-giving presence for eternity. And you can have it if you renounce everything else and entrust yourself to Jesus. Next, we see this. The Lord initiates in serving by healing. The Lord initiates in serving by healing. Look at verse 14. We get a, a scene change again. Still in Capernaum, but verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick with a fever. Verse 15. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Now, what we see again, right, all, all three of these episodes have shown Jesus just has the authority to heal, like instant. No questions asked, it just happens, right? Because he's the king. He has that level of authority. But notice what's different with this than the previous two. In the previous two, we had someone coming up to Jesus and saying, Lord, will you do this? And he does it. Here, notice what happens. No one asks Jesus for anything. He just walks into the house and sees this sick um, woman there, and he just walks over and he does it. He just initiates. He just goes. It's a very short episode, but it teaches us another aspect of Jesus' character. Jesus initiates. He's not waiting for people to, to move towards him. It's like, oh, if only that person would move towards me, right? No, he just initiates and heals. In fact, if you understand biblically what we've been talking about with discipleship and, and even healing and things like that, ultimately, those who are disciples of Jesus, they come because Jesus himself and the, his spirit 
pushed them towards Jesus to begin with, right? Jesus initiates. Every one of you in here who is following Jesus, the only reason you're here is not because ultimately you came. Now, you did come, but you came because the Holy Spirit drove you to come to Jesus. Jesus initiates. And aren't we thankful for that? Because if it was left up to us, we would be dead in our trespasses and sins still. So entrust yourself to Jesus as the one who has compassion and who moves towards those who needs his compassion. Again, we go back to that thinking of sometimes we, even as disciples, we get into this mindset, I am so filthy and I am so dirty, and it's true, we are that. And yet we think, I have to clean myself up to come to Jesus. No, you go to Jesus to be cleaned up. And he's not standoffish like, you're filthy, stay away from me. He moves towards you. Uh, James talks about it like this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's who Jesus is. That's his character. That's what you need to see from these episodes in Matthew 8. And finally, we see this, just kind of as a summary way of wrapping it up. The Lord is the healing, suffering servant. The Lord is the healing, suffering servant. Look at verse 16. I think this is a different episode because we've got a scene change. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, or demon-possessed, really. And he cast out the spirits with a word, just like with the sickness of the centurion's servant, and healed all who were sick. Again, the, the imagery is just whoever's there, instant. As many who are there, whoever it is, whatever their condition, instant healing. Done. Because that's the level of authority that Jesus has. But notice this, uh, and this is really crucial. Verse 17 says this, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, that seems like a really simple statement. It is extremely profound. One, there's a couple, one thing to notice. Uh, there's a little conjunction there, actually, at the beginning of verse 16, or 17, sorry, that connects and gives the purpose, there's a purpose, verse 17 is a purpose statement for what was happening in verse 16. Well, what was going on in verse 16? Who was healing? Jesus was casting out demons. Jesus was healing so that, and that's really that way in the original Greek, so that what? So Jesus is the one who has a purpose in healing. And what is Jesus' purpose in healing to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So Jesus' purpose in healing is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. That's literally how it reads in the original. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases, which is from Isaiah 53. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. I want to set the context for this. We've talked about this before. We did this uh, in Matthew 1 through 4, all these fulfillment statements that Matthew has. Anytime he, he draws our attention to a fulfillment statement, what are we supposed to do? We're not just looking at that individual verse, we're looking at the context that that verse is connected to and understanding the verse in that context, because he just has to pull on one link and he drag up a whole chain of context with it, which is exactly what is happening here. And just to set the context, remember uh, Isaiah, uh, it's, it's, it's written to a people who are going into exile because of their sin, there's these promises of a second exodus led by a second Moses from exile, from, uh, 
from exile, but the reason Israel went into its exile was because of its sin. And so you have in Isaiah 40 through 66, this specifically Isaiah 40 through 55, you have this individual who represents the nation called the suffering servant who will ultimately deal with Israel's reason for why they went to exile to begin with, their sin. And the beating heart of that is Isaiah 53, which is where our text is quoted from. This is amazing. Look at, well, let's just start reading in Isaiah 52, 13. That's kind of where the major section starts. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle, which is a, a term talking about like what the priest would do in sprinkling to, with blood or with oil to cleanse someone, so that he will sprinkle many nations, not just Jews, many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they will, them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who is so we got this person, this servant, he's suffering in some form, and then it delves into his career in Isaiah 53.1. Who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, and a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So it's talking about this servant, and it's talking about his career, and this guy, uh, though he is in, in the flow of Isaiah, the servant is identified with the messianic king, and he should be, he is high and exalted, he should be revered, but what we see in Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, is he's despised, he's rejected. And then verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. That's the quote that we have in Matthew 8. This is what Jesus is seeking to fulfill in healing. And uh, ESV kind of talks about it as griefs and sorrows. Literally, it is illnesses and sicknesses. The idea is illnesses and pains. So he's still describing, Isaiah is describing the career of this, this suffering messianic servant who's going to come. And there's no reason to think that Isaiah 53, verse 4, is talking about anything other than literal illnesses and literal pains. But notice how that transitions. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see the chain that Jesus is picking up on by just quoting Isaiah 53, 4? He wants people to see him as the one who's bearing the illnesses, bearing the pains, the physical illnesses, the physical pains, and he's taking him away, and he wants people to say, hey, that guy looks like the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. But notice how Isaiah, the logic of Isaiah 53, yes, the suffering messianic servant takes away illnesses and pains, but he goes deeper. Why is there sickness, disease, and pain in the world? Because of sin. Not because, it's not like, okay, I, I had an ache today, or I, had, um, I cut myself today, right? Therefore, and that's because I sinned in this particular way. It's not like that. But we know that the only reason there's such a thing as sickness, illness, or pain in the world is as a result of sin. It's that exile. We're all in exile. We talked about this earlier in Matthew. We're in a fallen world. And Jesus is dealing with some surface symptoms, right? You, if you think about medical stuff, you've always got surface symptoms, but then what's the root cause, and you want to deal with the root cause? Well, Jesus is treating in his ministry some surface symptoms, but he's going to deal with the root cause. He wants people to see, yeah, this guy's dealing with... He's doing amazing things. He's obviously got this authority and he's compassionate, but his compassion and his mercy is going to drive to the heart of why there's such a thing as sickness and disease and pain. He's going to deal with individual sin. He's going to be the substitute. That's what the rest of the chapter in Isaiah 53 is going to talk about. He's going to take on himself not only our diseases, but he's going to take on, us, on himself the sins of his people, those who entrust themselves to him. And he's going to deal with that. He's going to deal with that. And really what Jesus purchased on the cross, he purchased, for those who would entrust themselves to him, the, the cancellation of the debt of sin for those who entrust themselves to Jesus and his righteousness, his lived-in-flesh righteousness in their place so that God can look on those who have such faith as righteous. He purchased that, and he purchased, in addition to that amazing and glorious reality, the restoration of the entire cosmos, including getting rid of sickness, illness, and disease. And the call is this, entrust yourself to Jesus as the compassionate, suffering servant who alone can deal with your sickness of sin. He is compassionate, powerful, and able through his work on the cross and his indomitable life, conquering the uncleanness of death. And that's not just a one-time thing. It's not just, okay, I believe in Jesus, I'm good. No, the life of a disciple is keep coming back to him, keep entrusting yourself to him as the healer, who is powerful to deal with the sin that crops up in your life, right? That's going to happen as a disciple. If you're walking, you know that your sin crops up in your life. What do you do? 
you come back, the very first thing you do is you come back to Jesus and say, Jesus, you and you alone are powerful enough to cleanse me from this sin. I am begging you, cleanse me so that I can draw near to God. Here's another dimension of this, though. There are many of you I know for a fact in this room who suffer physical illness and great pain. And here's the comfort from a passage like this. I don't know if you ever come to a passage like this and you're like, I know Jesus can do it. Why doesn't he do it for me? Right? There's a temptation to do that, right? I know he can. I know he could do that, even in heaven. And it would be over. But he doesn't. Well, here's what you do with that. Know that Jesus can take away your illness and illness. And sometimes he does. He does miraculous things. Know that he can and he will, just not necessarily now. He will do it. When is he going to do it? He's going to do it. Remember, what's the healing about? A foretaste of the coming kingdom. So he will do it. He's going to do it in his kingdom in connection with that messianic feast and because of what he did on the cross. Jesus paid for your bigger problem of sin, and he will. There's, there's, he purchased the restoration of the cosmos, including your illness. Yet, not now, but in the future. And let that hope of that future reality and healing help you endure through the hard days as you keep entrusting yourself to Jesus, right? It's about the person. The person is powerful. The person is able and you're connected with that person, and you say, Lord, I know you could take away my illness and my pain and my suffering. I know you will in the future. I know you could do it now if you want it, and sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. But the future reality and being with Jesus, being with God's life-giving presence forever is what helps you through the hard days. Helps you through the hard days. Entrust yourself completely to Jesus as the compassionate, serving, and healing king. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to praise you right now that you are compassionate, you are authoritative, you are powerful, you are, you are good. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you invaded earth to solve every problem. And you dealt with the deepest problem in your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. Lord, help us to keep entrusting ourselves to you every day. Lord, we confess our sin. We are an unclean people. And yet we know you, because of what you've done on the cross, because of what you've done in the resurrection, the Father doesn't look at us with anger or hostility and Lord, you've given us the hope of the future kingdom and sitting at that banquet table. Lord, I pray that for those who haven't entrusted themselves to you, who are maybe in this room, Lord, that you would work in their hearts, that you would draw them to yourselves, initiate and draw them to yourselves, O Lord God. And help us as disciples to keep, keep coming back and keep entrusting ourselves to you, our great and awesome King. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.